So Romans, again. And I will say up front, this week and next week are probably the hardest messages we'll have in this 9 to 11 passage, chapters 9 through 11. Uh, I don't apologize for that, but I do want to prepare you for it. Today's hard. Um, you say, well, the last couple of weeks have been hard. I, I, you're probably right. It is, it is hard. <coughs> and I want to start, I don't have a, a fluffy illustration or a video to show you this morning. But I want to tell you this morning, what we're talking about, when we talk about Romans chapter 9, we're talking about a mystery. It's a mystery. And we're not trying to answer the mystery here. There is a mystery in how the Bible deals with God's foreknowledge and man's free choice. And there's been many times people have said that it's like two sides of, of a coin. Uh, you, you can't have one side and not the other. And that's true. The Bible clearly speaks of God's foreknowledge, God's election in Romans 9. And the Bible clearly speaks of the responsibility of man. We are not trying to solve that riddle. We are not trying to get inside the mind of God and say, oh, okay, here it is. Here's the answer. Here's the connection. Here's where we've short-circuited for 2,000 years. It's not what we're trying to do. What we want to do is present the Word of God as it is and let God connect the dots. Okay? So when we get to Romans 9, 14 through 18, we don't go, oh, no, we're going to skip that because we don't understand it. In the same way that we won't skip Romans 10, 9, and 10 that says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. If you do that, you will be saved. We're not going to skip that either. So, that's all to say, we got a lot of work to do today. And it's hard work, but it's good work. Anybody ever just get to the end of a day when you worked real hard and you just feel satisfied? Just plop down in your recliner. <sighs> that's kind of where we're going to go today, so... Um, what I want to do as we begin to follow that introduction is that I want to remind you of where we've been in Romans 1 through 8 quickly. Our first point of our outline was sin, the need for being right with God. And we saw that everybody, everybody is born a sinner. And that we all have a need to be made right with God because we're born rebels to God's will. Every one of us. Sin is in our DNA the scientists haven't found that yet, but it's there. Uh, write that down. I'll get a patent for that. But <clears throat> that, was, that was Romans 1, 1 through 3.20. And then we started to see the means for being right with God, which is justification by faith. And that ran through the end of chapter 4. And the only way that we can be made right with God as sinners is to be justified by faith. And that is a gift of God's grace. And that was some heavy sledding through the end of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 4. And then we got into blessings, the results of being made right with God, which was chapters 5 through 8. And man, oh man, oh man. I have... I asked the question here, and I've started asking it to some people at the therapy place. I want you to read Romans 8. And I want you to ask yourself, what if this is true? Oh, it's the Bible. Of course it's true. But no, I want you to ask yourself, what if this is true? What if there's no condemnation? Now, 
for those who are in Christ Jesus? What if we can't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus? What if that's true? And Paul addresses that here in chapter 9 as well. And he looks back at what he said and he says, But I got some problems. What I want to do this morning is I want to read for our reading. uh, Have you stand a little bit lengthier. I want to read chapter 9 verses 1 through 18. Because again, what we're seeing today is not... It wasn't scribbled on a post-it note and dropped in the mail, just 14 through 18. It was written in this big letter. So we've seen where we've come from, from 1 to chapter 8, chapter 1 to chapter 8. And we've got to keep that in mind as we move into today because it's all true and it's all one unit. So if you would stand with me. I'm going to read Romans 9, 1 through 18. (coughs) Excuse me. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let me pray. God, help us to not overemphasize one point of Scripture, but not to neglect it either. Help us, God, to understand these hard truths, and help us to see You as the awesome God that You are and worship You for who You are as a result of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Now I would just ask you to kind of put your finger on your own pulse right now and ask yourself, how do I feel about what I just read? Because guys, that's hard. And again, I'm not going to apologize for God. It's His Word. But that makes you a little bit uneasy, doesn't it? Doesn't it make you squirm a little bit? I hope it does. It makes me squirm. It makes me wonder and question and look at God and say, Did you really mean? Did God really say? Be careful with those thoughts. I'm not saying don't have questions. 
I'm saying be very careful with those thoughts. Because it sounds awful devilish. Did God really say? Did God really mean? <clears throat> so, we're going to focus today on 14 through 18. Of course, we'll start in 14, which says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So after seeing what we've seen over the last two weeks in particular, it would be easy to feel a little accusatory toward God, wouldn't it? The Jews as a whole seem to be cut off from Christ. That's what he said back in 1 through 4, 1 through 5. God's covenant with the Jews can look like it failed if you look on the outside. God chose Abraham not based on anything Abraham had done. He chose Isaac before he was ever conceived. And then he chose Jacob over Esau before they were even born. And our passage from last week ended with God saying, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that was prefaced by, before they had done anything right or wrong, God said, the older will serve the younger. And if we read that and take it for what it's saying, I'm afraid it would be very easy to say something. Fill in the blank for me. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But God, that's not fair. fair. It'd be real easy to say that, wouldn't it? Now be honest here. Let's, let's be honest. It's not fair. If we look at that passage and see God saying that He chose to set His love on Jacob over Esau, not based on anything good or evil that they had done, our sense of justice of fairness, very naturally rises up. And we can look at their lives later and see how they turned out, and we can make ourselves feel a little better, maybe. But the text explicitly says, God's choice wasn't based on anything good or evil that they had done. And why did God do it? What was His purpose? And we saw in order that His purpose in election might stand. And that word in and of itself gets us worked up, doesn't it? Just mention election in church circles and people are going to... And they're either going to fight for it or they're going to fight against it. I've seen very, 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 very few instances, maybe a handful in 20 years of ministry, where it was, oh, let's talk about that. People either get rankled and get mad or they get all supportive and I'm going to help God defend Himself when I talk about election. (coughs) Just mention election and folks get fired up. You hear things like this, but that's not what it means. That's not the God I know. God wouldn't do that. Or the basic, simple, but that's not fair. All these are standard answers or responses when we start talking about God's election, God's choosing, God's purpose. So Paul, being the expert logician and arguer that he is, sees this protest coming. And you'll see that all through chapters 9 through 11. He sees the questions coming. It's like he's saying, oh, but you will say this. Ah, but you're thinking this. Ah, you're going to ask the question this. And so he sees it coming and he addresses it. And he says, what shall we say then? 
Is there injustice on God's part? Which is to say, if God elects by His own free will who will be loved and who will be hated, who will receive blessing and who will not, who He sets His affection on and who He doesn't, what should our reaction be? What shall we then say? We see the evidence. We see the statements. Now, what should our reaction be? Should we accuse God of being unfair? Should we accuse God and say that He's unjust? Because we've already said that's kind of our natural bent. Poor little red hairy Esau coming out of the womb with Jacob's hand gripping his heel. He doesn't deserve to be denied the blessing that should rightfully be his, does he? I mean, he was the elder. He was supposed to receive the blessing. He was supposed to be the one that was the first sign of Jacob's or Isaac's strength. He was the one who was supposed to inherit the blessing of his father. But God said, no, poor little hairy red Esau. Just ain't right. It's not fair. It's not just. Right? I wouldn't do it that way if I was God. Is that not how we feel though? I mean, really. And if we took this question about God's justice out of this context, it would be easy to answer, wouldn't it? If I just walked up to you and said, is God unjust? You'd say, well, no. Quick answer. Of course He's not. He's God. God is holy. He's righteous. He's right. He's good. He does not and cannot sin, right? Well, what if I say God freely chose of His own will to bless Jacob and not Esau? Would you say then that God is unjust? Maybe. We wouldn't say it, but you might think it. You might feel it. What if I said... God chose who would be saved and who would not. Uh Uh-oh. Well, then surely we would feel the problem rising up in us and at least think that if that was true, then yes, that seems unjust, which would implicate that God is unjust. It's a quick, slippery slope. Did God really say? And Paul knows that. Hence his line of thinking here. So let me read the context again. What I'm going to do is look at Romans 9, 6 through 14. Okay? Just read, read along with me here. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So people aren't God's children because of their physical ancestry, because of being born of a certain ethnicity. And we're quick to agree with that when we think about the Jews. 
But they're only God's children because of God's promise and ultimately because of God's choosing. So what do we say to that? Is there injustice on God's part? And what's Paul's answer? By no means. We've seen this expression a few times in Romans already. Once was when Paul asked if we should sin so that grace may abound. By no means. And it means literally, it is impossible for that to ever come to be. It is an imperative exclamation. Y'all might remember this from the old building. It means no, 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 no. Is there injustice on God's part? It is impossible for that to ever come to be. No. Okay. So that's fine in and of itself as an answer, but what's the proof that it's true? Will Paul leave us with a, just trust me? I talk to God, He talks to me, I'll tell you what He says. Or I can speak for Him. Or is He going to follow this up with just, well, because I said so? Or because God said so? No, that's not what he does, but his answer is a little bit tough to understand. Look at verse 15 of Romans 9. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I don't get it. You get it? Does that satisfy you? Why is there not injustice on God's part? Because He says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Seems like He's just saying the same thing again. Just presenting the problem in a different format. So as we start looking into the reason as to why there is no injustice in God, He appeals, Paul appeals... Not to human emotions or explanations, but to what God says. That's pretty important. And we'll look at that more in the application section. But for now, let's suffice it to say that Paul's answer is based on God's Word. And what word is Paul referring to? What word in Paul's time would Paul have been referring to? It would have been the Old Testament. That's the scriptures that they had. So he appeals to the words of God recorded in the sacred scriptures to see what God says. And Paul's answer goes back to a time when God was talking to who? For he says to Moses. For he says to Moses. And what did God say to Moses? He, God, said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that's a direct statement spoken by God to Moses and recorded in Exodus 33, 19. So let's go back to the Exodus and catch the full context of what's going on here. Go to Exodus 33 if you've got a Bible. If you don't, we'll have it up here. But in Exodus 33, we're going to read verses 12 through 23, but I need to give you some background, of course. The Israelites were leaving Egypt after God had shown His wonders through ten plagues. We'll talk more about the plagues in a minute. And they were on their way to the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham that his descendants would live in and thrive in. On the way, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God, Aaron, Moses' brother, 
caves to the pressure of the people of Israel after Moses is gone for a long time. He's up on the mountain for like 40 days receiving the law of God. And the people are saying, Hey, make us a God we can worship. It looks like Moses ain't never coming back. Now he's been up there over a month. I mean, over a month. So, And they'd seen fire and lightning and what in the world? He's got to be dead by now. He's, he's a crispy critter up there. He's just burnt up in the glory of God up there or whatever. He's never coming back, so make us a God. So Aaron makes a golden calf, and the people revel and worship and dance and play and bow down to the calf. God tells Moses to get down the mountain and see what the people are doing. God knew what they were doing. He wanted Moses to see it. Moses goes down. He gets fired up. And after a bunch of people die, a bunch of people, Moses grinds up the golden calf, puts the dust in the water, and has the people drink it. And then God says, now come back up the mountain. Moses goes up and God says He's going to destroy the whole nation and start over with Moses. And Moses prays for the people and God says, okay, I won't destroy them. Now, Moses is hearing from God about how to proceed from here. That's, what, that's the background of what we're about to read, okay? <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 12 through 23 of Exodus 33. <clears throat> Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people." And he said, God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. <laughs> Ooh. May we not forget to tremble, church. So Moses is pleading that God will go with them and lead them and deliver them, and God says, I will. But then Moses, <clears throat> who sees a chance to go a little further says in verse 18, Please show me your glory. And what was God's reply when Moses said that? Please show me your glory. Verse 19, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now get this. In direct reply to Moses asking God to show him his glory, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
Okay, so I'm tracking so far. Then this. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Okay. Moses says, I want to see your glory, Lord. And God says, in essence, okay. I'll make all my goodness pass before you, proclaim my name before you, and I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So in revealing His glory to Moses, God appeals to His goodness, God's goodness, His name, and His own free will and choice. I want you to let that sink in for a second. Show me your glory, all right? My goodness, my name, my free will and choice. That's my glory. Mm. We talk a lot about God's glory and what that means. And we've seen some really poor representations of what people think are God's glory. So-called revivals in certain places where people are getting gold teeth. I don't make this stuff up. Where people are barking like dogs and clucking like chickens. And that's God's glory. No, no, sir. No. God's glory taken from a direct response of God to a request to show His glory to Moses shares His goodness, His name, and His own free will and choice. You want to know the glory of God? His glory is made up of His goodness, His name, and His own free will and choice. So back in Romans 9, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all chosen by God to be recipients of His blessing, His grace and His mercy, which means others were not chosen to receive those same things. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For in the grand display of His glory, which includes His goodness and His name, God chooses who will receive mercy and whom He will have compassion on. And it is His glory to do so. And if you'll remember back to last week, what is God's ultimate purpose in election and overall? His purpose is His glory. And He will have His glory and He will accomplish His purpose. And He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy and He will show compassion to whom He will show compassion. He says so. And then there's verse 16. I don't know how much more plain we can put it than verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now that demands a pretty careful look. The first words of the verse are, So then. This whole paragraph, 14 to 18, follows a pattern. Verse 15 started with the word for. For, he says to Moses. 
And that word for is giving an argument as to why there is no injustice on God's part. For, He will have mercy on and show compassion to whomever He chooses. And since that is so, we have verse 16, which starts with, So then. Since God gives mercy and shows compassion to whomever He will, so then. So then what? So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now guys, that's a huge statement. God showing mercy is one thing. But to flat out say it depends not on human will or exertion is a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big fork in the road where you got to choose a path. Did God really say it does not depend on human will or exertion? Yes, no. Yes, God did really say it depends not on human will or exertion. Depends means it doesn't rest on or ultimately rise or fall on something. I depend on my job to get money to support my family. If my rich uncle ever died, which I don't have a rich uncle, and left me his fortune, guess what I wouldn't have to depend on anymore? My job. Okay? So to obtain or receive God's mercy and compassion doesn't depend on what? It does not depend on human will or exertion. Human will is pretty clear cut. It means the human race's desire, wish, or efforts to obtain something. And what he's saying is, the human race's desire, wish, and efforts to obtain God's mercy isn't necessary. Now remember what I said back at the beginning of this message. We're going to talk about man's responsibility. But here, he clearly says, to obtain God's mercy does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God. So human will is not a viable option to receive God's mercy and compassion. And then it says that neither does it depend on human exertion, which is the physical effort to make something happen. Here, I'm going to go old King James on you because it says it in a way that, man, just really is pretty good. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that sheweth mercy. And that's a good rendering outside of the earths. Because it's not about human wanting internally or human doing externally. It doesn't depend on humans desiring it in their hearts or grasping for it by physical effort. The literal Greek reads, So then not on the one who desires, nor on the one who runs. Want in one hand and try in the other. See which one fills up first. The answer is neither of them will. It won't have an effect at all. So what does it depend on? Receiving God's grace, compassion, mercy. It depends on God. It depends on God who has mercy. 
you'll remember last week, <clears throat> we saw in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Here it was clear that there was a contrast between works and Him who calls. This clause in verse 16 is very similar. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion. It doesn't even depend on human faith. Don't pick up the stones yet. Okay, stay with me. It depends on God who has mercy. The clear contrast is between human effort of any kind and God freely choosing to show mercy and have compassion. There would be no human faith, no human effort at all, if God did not show mercy and have compassion. It ultimately depends on Him, period. And that is a big part of His glory. This passage is clear about that. Okay, so I think we can at least be partially on board with God showing mercy, even if it is only to whom He chooses. But there's another side of the election coin. You've got an election coin and a free will coin and, or, or a human responsibility coin. And ultimately God joins those two coins together, but they both have two sides to them. That's confusing. Forget I ever said that, okay? So we're, I think we can say, okay, God shows mercy to whomever He chooses. I, I think vanilla-ish we can say, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what Paul said. Again, Lord, may it never be about what I'm saying. But look at verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so we start back into a new cycle of our for and so then pattern. Here in verse 17. So, for here is used to show that an argument is being made again. We just saw in the previous verses that God chooses whom He will have mercy on and show compassion to. But would that infer anything further? Like maybe He chooses other things? For the Scripture, the Word of God, says to Pharaoh... Now let me ask you, was Pharaoh in the book of Exodus an ally or an enemy of God and His people? He was an enemy. Obviously an enemy, right? He was oppressing them. He was holding them down. He would not let my people go. Charlton Heston with all that hair. <laughs> Why was he an enemy? Was he just mean and cranky? And overbloated with being leader of the greatest civilization in the known world at the time? Or was there more purpose in him being opposed to God? Was there more of God's doing? Romans 9.17 records the words of God spoken to Moses found in Exodus 9.16. Now at this point, we talked about plagues earlier, we're six plagues into the ten plagues. 
And God was sending these plagues upon Egypt in order to deliver His people from that land. Before the seventh plague, God instructs Moses to go to Pharaoh and speak some words to him, which ultimately we know that who spoke the words? Aaron spoke the words because Moses said, I stutter. Fine, let Aaron be your mouthpiece, God said. So they're going into Pharaoh, and this is what God tells Moses to have Aaron tell Pharaoh. Exodus 9, 14 through 17. Don't worry about turning there, just look up here. God's saying to Moses, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. He's saying that say this to Pharaoh. And on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me, God says, in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. God says plainly that He raised Pharaoh up, that He put Pharaoh in charge of Egypt, and He had Pharaoh right where He wanted him. This was God's doing. Pharaoh was Pharaoh because God made him Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened because God hardened it. But, you may say, wait a minute, doesn't it say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart before this? And God's just following up on what Pharaoh had already done? That might be a possibility if it weren't for Exodus 4.21, which is historically before Moses even went back to Egypt. And there God says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you get back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I've heard that argument a lot. Well, Pharaoh hardened his heart first and then God just went along with what Pharaoh wanted to do. No. No. Before Moses stepped foot back in Egypt... God said, I will harden his heart. That's God's doing. Before it ever happened, like Jacob and Esau, like Isaac, like Abraham, that's God's doing. When you go back to Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. God said before Moses ever stepped foot back in Egypt that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. That was God's plan. And to take it any other way is to directly refute what's being shown in Romans 9.17. Because the quote says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God raised Pharaoh up. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for this very purpose. And what is that purpose? That he might show his power in the midst of Pharaoh's hardness and unrelenting, and then what? That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Man, that sounds an awful lot like God's glory, doesn't it? And God's glory is his goodness, his name, and his free choice and his will. And his choice, his will, was to raise Pharaoh up, to harden his heart, and to show his own might and power in delivering his people out of puny little Pharaoh's land. God did that, and God did it for God's glory. 
Then verse 18. (laughs) So then, He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. And this verse shows both sides of that electing coin. For He says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, so then... God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. Now again, that's a monster of a statement. It's a monster. Like I said earlier, we can delight in God showing mercy, even if it is to whomever He wills. But can we delight in and worship God and glorify God for hardening whomever He wills? I told you all this was hard. That's hard. Now remember, all of this is to answer the question of whether there's injustice in God or not. Is this fair? Is this right? Is this just? Is this good? Well, God hardening people according to His will for the spread of His fame and glory it directly reflects His glory, so it's good. And it's God's doing, so it is right. If it's right that God can show mercy on whomever He chooses, it is also right that He can and does harden others. Now we'll see this more in depth next week, so again, don't don't mail in your package yet. Return to sender, don't want it. But if God displays His glory by exercising His perfect, free, choosing will, then that door can swing both ways. He can freely show mercy and He can freely harden and be glorified in the process. That's what He does. That's who He is. And that's how His purpose is carried out. Is that fair? Is it unjust? Is there injustice in God? Now I'm going to tell you next week... Paul's going to smack that in the mouth. I mean, just plain and simple. Is there injustice in God? We're quick to say, and we should be quick to say, by no means, to the prospects of there being injustice in God. It is not unjust for God to either show mercy or harden anyone whom He chooses. He is God. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. His goodness defines Him and His glory, as does His free, sovereign choice. May we see His Lordship, His goodness, and His free, sovereign choice, and worship Him and give Him glory for it all. He will have His glory. It's His purpose. And we can be a part of giving it to Him, or we can accuse Him of being unjust. I know somebody else that's called the accuser, and I don't think I want to be in his camp. That's our two options though. Glorify Him or accuse Him. And remember, there is more to chapters 9, 10, and 11. Don't throw in the towel too early here. Don't get too mad at me right now. There's much more to explore, much more to see and appreciate. Stay with us and worship God in all His glory. And that leaves us to application. How do we apply this? 
somber. It's heavy. It, 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 it is. So how do we apply it? How should it affect us? Application point number one. And I say this especially, I say it to everybody, but to you younger folks that are growing up in a world that has lost its mind, go to God's Word, not the world's ways or your emotions in order to know the truth. Paul used the Bible to explain God's free and sovereign choice. He appealed to God's Word to explain God to explain God's plan and God's truth. Listen to me, please, especially you younger folks. Two things that you can not trust if you are looking for truth. One is the prevailing wisdom of the world, and two is your emotions. Both will lead you away from God and His truth. The world stands and accuses God of being unfair or unjust and has its own set of standards. And those standards change and waffle according to popular opinion or according to those in power who exert their influence for their own good. And I'm telling you, you can't trust them. The ways of this world, the system of the world are contrary to the truth of God. And if you want to look and say, yeah, but look what's going on all around us. There's a wave of progressive movement. There's a wave of open-mindedness. And there's a a wave of whatever truth works for you, can work for you, but don't try to infringe upon my truth. And that is in direct opposition to the truth of God's Word. The wisdom of the world says that truth is subjective. The wisdom of God says no. The truth of God is objective and cannot be altered or changed to suit the mindset of the world. Go to God's Word to find the truth. You have no other option. You say, but wait a minute, that don't make me feel good. That's why you can't trust your emotions. It would be real easy to read this passage today and rely on our emotions to tell us what we know about God. Because that feels unfair. That feels, oh, that's so sad. Oh, poor old Esau. What about these people that God's choosing to harden? That doesn't feel right. You can't trust your emotions to tell you the truth. Emotions make a great servant and a terrible master. You keep trusting your emotions and you will find yourself far from the truth of God. We are to be conformed to the image of God as our minds are transformed, Romans 12 says. And the only thing that can transform our minds is not your emotions, but the truth of God's Word. You really want to trust your emotions to determine truth for you? Your fickle, selfish feelings that change with the amount of food and sleep you get? Or how much traffic is on the road? Can I get an amen to traffic? Drive down Beaver. Drive up Harper Road. Jeez, my emotions get the best of me. 
When we are looking at a polarizing and difficult doctrine like election, we can't let the world or our emotions determine what we think or feel the truth should be. We have to look at the Bible, the whole Bible, to see the truth from God's perspective. That which is unchanging and unaffected by outside influences. If we are to discern what is true about God's free, sovereign will, we have to look at what He says. He, listen, God is the only free, sovereign being in the universe. You say, but what about man? We'll talk more about that in the next couple weeks. God is the only free, sovereign being in the universe. So if we're going to know what truth is, we have to ask Him. And His answers come in the Bible. So consult the Bible, not your feelings or the world's wisdom when looking for truth. That was point one. Point two, application. If we are Christians, we are to seek God's glory. And what does that glory consist of? His name, His goodness, and His sovereign free will. So it is inherent in our calling as those who know no condemnation, as those who can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, it is inherent in our calling to glory in the full truth of who God is. And there are some hard truths that make God who He is. Yes, He is a God of love and He is also a God of wrath. Yes, He gives grace and compassion to whomever He chooses. And yes, He hardens whomever He chooses. And these truths are parts of the picture that make God glorious and good and deserving of worship. We can worship the name of God. We can rejoice in His goodness. And we can stand with our hands over our mouths in awe at the free sovereign will that He alone has and displays. Now, do I understand that fully? No, I do not. Do not. But if I understood everything about God, then guess what? I'd be God and I wouldn't need to worship Him. But I don't. And I'm not, so I do. And He fits the bill perfectly. There are mysteries wrapped up in the person of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons. So we take the things that are revealed and we run with them as hard as we can run with them. And the things we don't understand, I'm going to shut up and say, God, you're God. You are sovereign. You have your own direct sovereign free will. And I don't understand that, but I will seek your glory. That includes that sovereign free will. So go to the Bible for truth. Seek God's glory. Last point. Finally, after looking to God's Word to determine truth, and worshiping God and giving Him glory for who He is fully, listen to me. We have to make sure that we never, and I mean never, accuse God of injustice. 
Now that application is easily applied to the truths that we're looking at today regarding election and God choosing and God showing mercy and God hardening. But we also need to remember this when things don't go the way that we wish that they would. When difficult times come, when sickness strikes, when death comes, when spouses are unfaithful, when the world seems like it's spinning out of control. In these times, especially in these times, the most dangerous thing that we can do is accuse God of being unjust or unfair. And man, that's where we go right off the bat. God, why did you do this? God, why did you let this happen? God, I am mad at you. And listen, I'm not saying be false toward God and not reveal your emotions to God. Absolutely be open and honest. Read the Psalms. They're raw. How long, O Lord, until you act on behalf of your people? How long will you let injustice run? But I am saying never, ever, ever should we as Christians, or as non-Christians, but... It's a whole different subject. As Christians, we should never go to God and accuse Him of being unjust, even when things don't seem like they're fair to us. In these times, especially in these times, the most dangerous thing we can do is accuse God of being unjust or unfair. Now, why would I say that? Don read from Psalm 8 at the beginning of the service, and David asks in that psalm, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Listen, we are all of us, all of us sinners who deserve death, hell, and the grave. And that is all that we deserve. If you want to know what you deserve from God, you end up getting death, hell, and the grave. That's what you deserve. We live in a fallen, sinful world. And as such, we are, all of us, affected by the ravages of sin. Paul referred to the whole creation groaning back in Romans 8 because it was subjected to futility when we sinned in Adam. So our sin brought sin's effects into the universe. The only way out of that sin and those effects is by the grace of God, making a way for us to escape the world and the sin therein through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And by grace, that gift is offered to us to receive freely. So when the doctor's head is shaking, when the only one you ever trusted breaks your heart, or any manner of things is tearing your world apart, your only hope of receiving any grace in those times lies in the name, the goodness, and the sovereign free will of God. If you have a finger pointed at Him calling Him unjust, you are missing your only opportunity to receive hope and healing. You need grace. I need grace. And that grace is only found in a God who gives grace as a kind, loving act of His sovereign, free will. The last thing we should be doing is accusing Him of being unjust. If He were content with only being just, we would none of us stand a chance. 
but He is a kind, loving, benevolent God who cannot be unjust, but He can show mercy and compassion for His glory's sake. Run to Him, not from Him. Appeal to Him. Don't accuse Him. Hide in Him, not from Him. And find your rest, find your peace, your joy in the name, the goodness, and the sovereign free will of the God who freely gives grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that the birds that would come to snatch this seed away would be gone from this place. And God, that your seed, your good seed, would find good soil to grow up and produce a crop a hundredfold for your glory. God, I pray that you would save sinners in this room this morning that You would awaken them to their need for a Savior and that they would have their eyes open to see that that Savior is Jesus Christ, the only Son of God who became a man, lived a perfect life, and bore our sins upon the cross, took our punishment so that we wouldn't have to be punished, was dead, was buried, was resurrected, showed Himself alive over a period of 40 days to over 500 people, and then ascended and is seated at your right hand right now, God, and He ever lives to make intercession for us. Show the unbeliever in this place this morning the glory of the Son of God. And may they run to Him for salvation. God, for those who are grieving, for those who are hurting, I pray that Your Spirit would minister grace to their hearts even now. I'm not asking for answers right now, God. I'm asking for grace to stand in the midst of the struggle. And God, may all of us in this room this morning be awakened to the wonder of Your glory. Your glory that consists of Your goodness, Your name, and Your sovereign free will. God, You are much bigger than we give You credit for. And you will show compassion to whom you will show compassion. You will give mercy to whom you will give mercy. And you will harden whom you choose to harden. And you are glorious in the midst of it. Give us eyes to see it, God. And may we not accuse you, but may we worship you. In spirit and truth. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Is there then injustice on God's part? May it never May we walk in that truth and give you glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.